every generation there is a chosen podcast. It alone will analyze the subtext, the allegory, and the clever Whedon-esque dialogue. It is Conversations with Dead People. Welcome to Conversations with Dead People, a post-mortem podcast on the works of Joss Whedon. Uh, my name is Paul Smith. I'm your host, and I'm typically joined by guests from the worlds of fandom and academia as we make our way through the critically acclaimed series Buffy the Vampire Slayer and its spin-off series Angel. Uh, this week, it's Buffy Season 4 episodes Superstar and Where the Wild Things Are. Uh, and back with me again uh, tonight, my good friend, uh, former podcast producer and current rock star, Ken Edwards. Ken welcome home or whatever <laughs> welcome, back. welcome we're, back we're coming through town this on, on on tour we're visiting sunnydale for the night happy to be here uh yeah i'm glad that you uh uh still stuck with me in this post podcasting period of my life paul you just bring me back in every i mean time. i try to cut anything that's not podcast related out of my life but uh you, i make a special exception for you ken <laughs> Luckily, I did not forget how to speak, so I think, I think that combined with the fact that I still enjoy Buffy makes me qualified enough to be here. I'm yeah, not sure. no, no, it makes you you it's you're more qualified than I am because uh, <laughs> I do lose the ability to speak between recording sessions every single time we do this. A little oh, behind, wow. a little behind the scenes for my listeners. I just started the intro and had to stop and restart because I felt like I was completely fumbling my lines, and Ken very generously was like, "I didn't notice anything wrong." But yeah, I like that idea that like yeah, you just have like laryngitis as long as you're not podcasting and that's why you have three podcasts yeah yeah no i can only speak when i am recording a podcast that's the <laughs> only time that my voice works man i had that disease for like five years straight yeah yeah well you you made the break you've escaped so anyways um yeah let me uh let me just throw out this spoiler warning I don't know if I, I assume that from week to week, from episode to episode, I, people are joining the podcast all the time. I don't know that the, my numbers support that claim, but I'm just going to pretend that every episode is a, is new to somebody. So spoiler warning, if you haven't listened to the show before, uh, conversations with dead people is not a typical rewatch and review podcast. Uh, we're going to be exploring the plots, characters, and themes of each episode in depth and within the context of the series as a whole, uh, which means there's going to be spoilers, lots of spoilers so i recommend if you haven't already watched buffy the vampire slayer and ideally angel the series all the way through at least once pause go do that we're not going anywhere we'll be here clearly i can't get enough of podcasting so you will always be able to find me um but uh ken has in fact watched the show uh we both have so we are prepared to talk about this get the boring business out of the way and now ken let's go to work looks like you finally brought in the big guns paul yes yes i i'm tired of messing around 
I love the idea that somebody's watching this show for the first time and they, they could follow it all and then they get to Superstar and they're just like, wait, 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 wait. <laughs> I need to go listen to every podcast on this episode to understand. That's right. That's right. This makes no sense. Surely someone has done a podcast explaining what I'm watching right now. Well, that's why we're here. We are here to explain episode 417 Superstar to start with, um, which actually, you know, we're making a joke, but I believe that uh, I think I, I'm not. My notes are hopelessly <laughs> muddled from when I do this show. So I'm not looking at the air dates in front of me right now, but I'm if I remember correctly, there was sort of a, a gap in the airing schedule the original airing schedule and superstar i think maybe there was a couple weeks between episodes and uh, superstar kind of filled that gap which was which made this episode a little weird for people i feel like because there's no explanation uh it just kicks into uh a world where all of a sudden jonathan levinson is the most important character in the buffy verse uh, it, it becomes the Jonathan verse. It's no longer the Buffy verse, um, including like all new opening credits. And, and yeah, so we're making a joke about it, but I think that maybe there really were people who were a little confused at the time. Oh, well, even me, when I watched the show for the first time, 10 years ago on a binge, like I didn't like, you know, who are you is a big episode. I'm sure there were a few weeks after that for people to like, uh, uh, think about it and then like but even just going right to the next episode at the time I remember watching it with the person I was watching with and going like what the hell yeah what is, like <laughs> and that's even with like 10 more years of like 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 TV watching built on top of this yeah. I was still still confused yeah it's funny we um Ken I don't know if you're you're probably aware but I, I will pretend like maybe you aren't um, that Arlo made his conversation's debut with our uh, previous episode. We broke, we broke the apocalyptic seal on that whole thing. And uh, we talked about, like you said, who, uh, who are you? I always want to call it who you are. Anyways, who are you? Um, And we were, we made a point of praising the episode for in the opening sequence, it referenced, um, Eliza Dushku as Buffy. We were like, that's really cool. Uh, and then we were like, well, you know, that that's super cool. But the next, the very next episode takes that to the next level. And obviously it does because uh, it drops um, Jonathan. It drops uh, Danny Strong into the, all through the title sequence. Like he gets a significant appearance after every single one of the main cast is introduced. <laughs> And and it's it's mostly footage from this episode, but they yeah. add in one thing, and it's him defusing a bomb, and I think that is the funniest thing. I forgot about that. Yeah, I was I, maybe that was the Jonathan verse version of because uh, I think it was season three when um, Xander defused a bomb. Oh yeah, that sounds right. Is that right? Yeah, I think maybe that was the Jonathan replacing Xander in that scene. But yeah. Anyways. All right, so what uh, what's your take on this episode? How do you feel about Superstar? How do I feel about it? I feel everything about it. I love it. <laughs> and I hate it because it means Jonathan's not the star after this episode. <laughs> <laughs> you know, this, this episode is every nerd's dream come true up to a certain point. <laughs> up to a certain point, yeah, exactly. 
Um, yeah, this is a weird episode for me because I, so it's really funny and I enjoy it, but I kind of, I, I had a, a back and forth as I was rewatching it, uh, for this podcast where I remembered as I started watching it, I was like, Oh, I, I thought I remembered liking this more than I am liking it right now. <laughs> uh, um, and maybe two or three times as I was rewatching the episode, I was like, no, no, this is good. This is really good. This is as funny as I remembered. And then I'd be like, mm, no, this is, I'm not liking this as much as I thought I would. But by the end, I'd come around. So I, I think I'm back to the point where I consider Stu Superstar to be actually a legitimately entertaining, uh, fun episode. Well, it's, it gets uncomfortable at certain times because, I mean, and I'm, I guess this is just me jumping straight to what the episode's trying to say or whatever, but it's 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 not problematic because it recognizes what it's doing, but through most of the episode, we're seeing Buffy not being the the one, the self-empowered person that we've always known her to be, and that makes us inherently feel super uncomfortable. I mean... It's sort of a statement on toxic masculinity. I mean, as yeah. as a guy who I like, I feel like I went to high school in the last years where it was socially unacceptable to be a nerd. Like nowadays, mm. with like uh, you know everyone being on their phones with their little gadgets or or, or or being into the Marvel movies, like everyone's sort of allowed to be a nerd about something these days. I don't know. I don't hang out in high school. Um, Buffy's <laughs> as close as I get to it. But, that's probably um, for the best <laughs> right but the way I, I assume things are like that that's how things have sort of transitioned and so like what he has done is taken her belief in herself away from her I do like that um, his idea of power does not have anything to do with um, being some sort of sexual god like he does have those two twins that live right. in the house with him or whatever but i think that's just a byproduct of his status achieved by being the coolest people or the coolest person to the people he perceives to be the coolest people like all right. he really wants is for for them to see him as he's always seen them and the, the weird thing at the end of the episode that i, I continue to be sort of confused by i watched it twice like in preparation for this is like it was all just a belief like he, he these people believed he was cool and he believed he was cool and that's all it took it's like the world didn't exactly change other than like the posters and marquees and and whatnot but he if he would have exited this sort of uh uh fantasy and gone hey i can spike my hair up and dress differently and 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 pretend to be the coolest guy in the world that's what confidence is confidence isn't something one has it's a it's a it's an activity one does and he just because he fooled them and allowed them to believe he was the coolest he felt he could be the coolest and it sucks that going like he that he reverts straight back to all of his insecurities after this that he doesn't really take uh, uh with him what he could have gained but i do like that buffy points it out that he's that uh it's like we're not mad because of the monster we're mad because of like you've with us you know that's a that's a fascinating take on this i'm so glad you you did that um i so much so many of my my little notes to myself are about how interesting it is that um that jonathan's 
sort of first foray into the world of magic, which this foreshadows a couple things that the series does later on. Uh, first of all, Jonathan in season six, it becomes really significant that Jonathan dabbles in magic. And this is the first time we see that happen. Um, and then Jonathan specifically uses, they call it an augmentation spell. That's what he's done in this episode to, to cause this change. And, um, like so many of my little notes about it stress the fact that this essentially has rewritten reality. This is, this is similar to kind of the whole doppelgangland thing to Anya's wish granting, which I think the episode lampshades that they, they mentioned that once or twice. Um, and I sort of question, you know, it's a, it's a, it's clearly a powerful spell in that it essentially has sort of rewritten the rules of reality in order to place Jonathan at the center of it. And yet the, the ultimate evil counterbalance that the spell comes up with is a really dorky monster of the week that, <laughs> that kind of roughs up Tara a little bit, but that's about the, the worst that it does. So I'm so busy concentrating on the fact that, wow, that is a massive spell that Jonathan just pulls straight out of, out of his butt uh and and um changes the world with and there's really kind of a pathetic monster as the consequence of it but um anyways all of that to say i love your read on it that really it's not that powerful of a spell because all it kind of does there is a certain amount of physical rewriting of reality because yeah it creates posters and all that stuff but really all it appears to do is alter people's memories and and sort of perceptions yeah um and it's it's very interesting to me i never would have thought about this 10 years ago when i watched it but like the fact that magic in this world is sort of becoming the language of outcasts um there's a there's a reason that you know tara and willow are witches and that they're they're the ones engaging with it and and so i like how it's not a clear cut like this means you're queer it's just sort of a a, a thing used to give outcasts a, a sense of empowerment and uh um you feel like they have yeah like an effect on the reality that surrounds them because the world as it is is not allowing them to um be the thing that they say or they feel like they should be okay to be. They're sort of ostracized in that certain way. And I feel like the the monster that's lame and lumpy and long-armed and, and just sort of silly, like, I think that's a kind of perfect manifestation of the idea of toxic male, like, ego. It's just, like, barreling through a room, waving its arms everywhere, just trying to get something you know, it's like it's 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 not it doesn't have a clear cut goal. It's not it's it's not anything tangible that we can actually relate to being a better person, cooler person, more knowledgeable, helpful to the world, uh, uh, part of the community. And that's what Jonathan's missing in all of this. Yeah, this is I. I you're giving me big ideas here, Ken. I, like my, my brain is following this. Uh, you're spinning me off into all these, these uh, tangents in the larger sort of Buffy verse um, talking about magic as the, the 
as something that outcasts do or what, how did you phrase it? Magic is the tool of outcasts or something like that. Yeah. Something like that. And, uh, I, I wonder if, uh, Arlo and I just talked about this on the last episode and, and I've brought it up before that one of the things that I have struggled with in the past about the show, Buffy, the vampire slayer. Um, and I'm, I'm, I continue to struggle with it on this rewatch and I'm hoping that maybe it gets better. Maybe I, maybe I can move past this, but is the notion that the Scooby gang starts the entire series off as the outsiders. Like they are the prototypical uh, nerds that get picked on. They're left out of, you know, they're the last picked for sports, whatever. They are the outsiders. And I'm uncomfortable with the way that over the course of the series, they gradually shift until they become really the voices of authority. And they uh, are the ones who sort of set the, the rules. And increasingly they seem to treat others and I've included Jonathan Levinson uh, on this list, um, and we we will definitely talk about this, but uh, increasingly they treat others as outsiders and not always with the, the uh, sort of empathy <laughs> and humanity that I feel uh, that I would expect from people who we have seen over a relatively short period of time move out of outsider status themselves. Anyways, I you saying that you are sort of now looking at magic as the, as a tool that uh, outsiders use. Um, I wonder if that ties into, because obviously Willow and Tara for as long as she is allowed to be around, we see the, the Scooby gang and in particular Willow um, become more and more proficient in the use of magic. And as the as the series progresses and as it winds down to its uh, ultimate conclusion, I become less comfortable with the not only the way that they use magic, but also just the fact that they use it so casually that it becomes such a it's just there. It's some something that they can use any time. Whereas earlier in the series. Uh, you know, it was a thing that was kind of dangerous and awkward and they really had to work to, to, to use it. And it didn't always work right. And, uh, so, so if magic is something that the outcasts have to use while they have, that they have to learn while they're playing within the field of the larger world that has power over them, you know, you have to play by the rules within a system in order to be able to break the rules. And I, I don't mean to get political, but as you and Arlo often say on Gobbledygeek, it's like hard to talk about art these days without it having some sort of political right. stance. So if we, I mean, we could look at the election, whether we, whichever way we wanted it to go, and say, say it hadn't been uh, uh, Hillary as the nominee and it had been Bernie. Well, Bernie and Trump, both outsiders in a certain way. When you're an outsider who gains power, it's all about intention. So the Scooby gang is still, all throughout the series, engaging in the the battle of good versus evil. Um, in, my, in the way I would lean politically, that would be that would be the Bernie route. Um, but you know, <laughs> you you come into power as an outsider, you can totally use that the wrong way, as has been demonstrated by everything on the news the past three years. Right. Uh, and and. I think that's, you know, Anya was a demon. It's not really like magic, but, you know, she does, she was doing sort of spells. She talks to Buffy about spells and her knowledge of them and this, and she was, you know, vengeance demon, 
we could essentially call Trump that uh, a vengeance demon, yeah. like using using your power negatively to affect the world um, uh, for those that you have power over. So uh, it's it's all about intention, I think. I, I don't think one is inherently good or bad, outcast getting power, magic becoming normalized. It's it's more like an evolution of where everyone is getting to as time goes on. Yeah. Um, uh, <laughs> all right. So let's, let's talk about Jonathan. Uh, like, like the reason this episode even exists. So yeah, we, yeah, we're really skipping past all the specifics. So yeah, I, I apologize. No, 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 <laughs> that, no. That's cool. I, I love the fact that uh, you were you were expanding my brain there for a little while. But let's focus back on the episode. Um, <laughs> so Danny Strong, uh, the actor, he's probably. I think it's fair to say Danny Strong is best known as one of my perhaps problematic special interests on this show on Buffy the Vampire Slayer. I think that's what he's most known for, right? Um, the character of Jonathan Levis Levinson is like uh, one of my pet projects in doing this podcast. It, I didn't intend it to be that way, but uh, I, I, I have a thing about Jonathan. Um, what a lot of people might not know maybe is that he's actually done sort of well for himself outside of the world of Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Yeah. Uh, I, I consider I, I sorry to interrupt you. I think this is like in a weird version of reality where you believe in manifesting something <laughs> like th this could have been, uh, you know, he could have been playing this with a belief in his life. Like, like really Danny strong, you know, uh, uh, making the Jonathan thing, Becoming a superstar. It's its almost a meta narrative in the real world sense past the life of this show. Because yeah. he has won more awards than anyone involved in this show at this right. point. Yeah. Yeah. So, I like, I mean, in addition, he, he was already, he's had other acting roles, obviously. He had at this time and, and he has, so he was on Gilmore Girls and Mad Men and Justified. But, um, like, he also dabbled a bit in writing, apparently. <laughs> So, like, you know, he did uh, a couple things for HBO. He did Recount and Game Change, uh, which won awards. Uh, he wrote the script for Oprah Winfrey's film The Butler. He wrote the the final two films in Hunter, Hunger Games franchise. And, of course, he co-created and, and has written and directed many episodes of uh, Empire, the Fox television series. So, I mean, he's he's done okay for himself. He Danny Strong has basically cast an augmentation spell... <laughs> And altered reality <laughs> so that he's now uh, the Jonathan Levinson of the real world, I guess. As I look over at my Danny Strong calendar on the wall. Right. Like, yeah. Give yeah. him a thumbs up. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I've got my, my poster for DannyStrong.com on the wall. Here. <laughs> um, anyways, so I I said at the top that I, I kind of went back and forth on whether or not uh, I liked this episode as much as I remembered, or if I was struggling with it. One of the things that I kind of struggled with briefly, and by the end of the episode I, I got over was, um, like I said, I'm super protective, or I'm very, I, I have issues built around the character of Jonathan and his repre representation on the show, and uh, the fact that the last time we saw him, not really the last time, but practically the last time we saw him before this was in the prom in uh, episode 320, the prom. And it was him presenting the uh, class protector award to Buffy. And it was a very, it was a, a sincere moment. And it was that character, you know, 
acknowledging to Buffy and to the audience that he he sees her he knows who she is he knows what she's done for for like everybody in the world and him in particular and it was a very touching moment and i felt like it was a great character growth moment for jonathan absolutely and just for just briefly for moments in rewatching superstar i questioned whether or not um this kind of new world that he has magically created around himself calls into question the sincerity of that the emotional sincerity of that character moment if it sort of muddies our memories of him being the one that had presented the class protector award and ultimately i came by the end of the episode i came down in uh much the same place that you just expressed that um this wasn't about him he wasn't deliberately trying to subvert buffy herself he didn't cast this spell in order to make her less than um, he just wanted to, he, he was, he wanted to be part of the group basically, I guess. I'm, as I'm saying this, I think maybe some of our listeners might debate this. I think you said it much better than I'm mumbling through right now, but yeah, this, this doesn't feel to me like a case of um, Jonathan changing his mind and maybe he was just pretending to understand Buffy when he presented the class protector award. I, I feel like this is just one more sincere and, and heartfelt if misguided attempt uh, by uh, a shy, awkward nerd to fit in, to be part of the group. Yeah. It's a perception problem. Yeah. It's, it's He still has a way to go. He doesn't, completely understand what makes the Scooby gang, the Scooby gang. It's not simply everyone thinking they're cool. Yeah. Um, so yeah, you also, you also mentioned, uh, that the end, I, I feel something you said made it sound like you were, that you liked Buffy's final comment at the end of the episode that's sort of her uh, her ultimate message to Jonathan at the end uh, about how you know you you can't go for the big gestures or whatever that that uh, you know this kind of stuff takes work um, but it takes a lot of hard work or whatever correct me if I'm wrong you were a fan of that speech absolutely and I, okay. I think it I think it not only sort of sums up the message of this episode but in a way the show as a whole obviously the show is about a lot of things and its finale is is doing a lot but you know it's not going to be one one moment that fixes everything it's going to be everyone working together and continuing to fight that fight that will make the world a better place yeah so here's my take on that final on that sort of buffy speech at the end um I agree with you that for the most part, I feel like that kind of is the overarching or, or has at times been the overarching theme of this series in general is that uh, like, like we've talked many times about the fact that the reason Buffy is the slayer she is, is because she is not isolated. She doesn't do everything by herself. She has friends like Spike makes the comment early in his appearance in the series of a slayer with friends that wasn't in the brochure. Um, but, uh, and, and the whole 
it's not about the grand gestures it's about the hard work that you put into it that's a message that is repeated in large and small measure across the entire series so i agree with you that's a great message where i struggle is the fact that buffy summers is the one that's giving that message <laughs> she is the one delivering the speech now i actually liked the moment because um buffy seemed genuinely like compassionate or whatever i i have such such hang-ups around the character around the character of buffy summers that i would have expected and and jonathan seemed uh like he maybe kind of did expect buffy to um at the very least yell at him or at the very least to like dress him down and be super upset and condescending about what he had done when really she seemed much more compassionate and, and understanding than I remembered. And I was expecting to, do you agree with that? Yes. I think, I think it might be easier for her uh, being snapped back into quote unquote reality. Uh, unfortunately this, this plays into the misguided perceptions of, what Jonathan was saying, but I think the reason it was easier for her to say that to him, uh, instead of having the self-awareness to apply all of this to her situation at certain times, is that she had regained the power. Yeah. I mean, that's that's still the toxic idea of power and being better than someone else is still going to be at play in quote-unquote reality. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, yeah. I mean, that that's where I was going. That's where my, some of my difficulty is. And, and as I've said many times, I'm trying to, to be a better person. <laughs> I'm trying to find the better me as I rewatch this series. And I'm trying to uh, be less critical of the character of Buffy as we go along, but it is still, it, it's a work in process. It's not about the big gestures. It's about the hard work. Um, so I did. Right, still... cause, cause like at, I remember talking to you in season two about this, like, uh, about how these are all kids and right. it's hard, harder to, to judge them on a level of like maturity that we may have attained at this point in our lives. But uh, I don't know. Here we are like literally just over halfway through the series. Are you feeling like you love Buffy or have an understanding of Buffy the character more than you did when you started this podcast? I, I feel like what has happened is um, I... <laughs> Man... What do I feel? Um, I'm still nervous about how I'm going to feel in the future. I, I, I need to try and let that go. I really, I really need to allow myself just to be in the moment of the series that we're in now, um, because I'm so, a, a lot of the stuff that I'm experiencing right now, like for example, this speech that Buffy gives, um, I should have had more of a read on it like you did. Uh, because she did seem genuinely sort of compassionate or whatever, but I'm so I'm anticipating being so upset at some of the stuff Buffy does in the future that I'm kind of upset at her already. <laughs> and it's, it's coloring my, my viewing a little bit. Like um, you're right. Exactly where I was going with that Buffy thing at the end is that's a wonderful message, but I'm kind of frustrated that Buffy is the one giving it because technically Buffy, Buffy got her powers through a grand gesture <laughs> and like she had, she had superpowers basically handed to her. Now, you know, it, it's a mixed blessing. She didn't want them, but whatever, she didn't have to work to get those powers. And 
so much of the character arc of Buffy is her trying to avoid her responsibilities. Uh, so I don't know. It, it, it was a little bit of a bitter pill for me to hear Buffy being the one delivering that message, but I, I accept the fact that it's an, it's an arc that Buffy is, is in like, these are human characters. She's young. She's learning. Yeah. I don't know. I feel like I'm repeating stuff I've said many times on this show, but. And I, and I, I'll just probably repeat what I said two seasons ago, which is just like, I feel like any protagonist being complex and complicated and imperfect is compelling. Yeah. Uh, if she were perfect all the time, she'd be the most boring character on TV. I mean, I don't mean, I don't mean to, I don't mean to skip to the next episode, but I mean, like, you know, maybe she's not doing quote unquote, the right thing in the context that that episode is sort of like building for us to accept. But, you know, also, and being an attractive person, your first year of college, you're, <laughs> and, and I, I don't know. I, 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 I kind of could probably get it. Yeah. 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 I don't know. I don't, I don't, I don't, I, I tend to find myself not holding anything against her, but I think it's just because I, as a viewer in my living room are continuing to have experiential joy from watching her struggles. Yeah. Well, I, you know, I'm trying, I, I, I hope that I am making a good faith effort to be more <laughs> sort of, uh, sympathetic to the character of Buffy Summers than I, historically have been but uh it, it is still a work in progress um so just some little details about this episode oh and oh and and i another thing i meant to say just about that speech at the end of the episode she is only able to relay what she says to him because of what he then calls out that she is simply repeating what he said to her so yeah, she only yeah. has that point of view because jonathan who believed the best in himself was able to be selfless enough in that moment to give Buffy the right advice. Yeah. And therefore that was still within her when she got torn out of that fantasy that she had to believe herself out of and build her belief back up to believe that she was the slayer. Um, so she can relay that to him. Yeah. Th so this episode, uh, paradoxically, it makes me much happier with Jonathan's arc. And I'm, I'm, referring to the full thing, um, including stuff that happens to him in the future, um, which I'm a little bit vague on because my memories are porous, but, um, I feel like I'm reasonably familiar with what happens to him going forward. And it is, this episode makes that stuff both, um, like I, I feel better about the character's arc and it also feels more tragic. It feels, I'm, I feel better about it because, we get a glimpse of the fact that Jonathan actually is like you said, if Jonathan would just believe in himself, the way his spell made everybody else believe in him, like he could be that character. He could be that person. Um, and the spell didn't change who he actually was. Like he was still aware of himself. So that advice that he gave to her and to Riley about the, you know, where they both were in their relationship, that was him. The spell didn't create that advice. That was him coming up with that. So that's in him. Um, uh, and, you know, it, it also, I'm thinking about stuff that happens to him in the future. And 
I feel like even though it's ultimately tragic reminders, this is a spoiler podcast, even though it's ultimately tragic, I don't think it's as tragic as it could be. I, I guess, um, he gets involved with other characters, like the whole nerd trio thing that happens. Um, the other characters in that trio, I feel like, um, well, one in particular, Warren, obviously in particular, but, uh, but even Andrew, uh, who outlives Jonathan ultimately, um, I feel like both of those characters come off way worse than Jonathan. I feel like Jonathan, uh, continues to be the, the good person who maybe just makes mistakes going forward. Yeah. I, I, he's a, he's a victim of toxic masculinity in the, and, mm-hmm. and the biggest sense. Yeah. I, I don't even know if that was a term that was used yeah, uh, in, it, at, at the time then, but the show clearly gets what that, uh, what that is, especially in this sort of high school college time of our lives, which is ironic considering Xander Harris is still a character on the show. <laughs> Right. <laughs> but but anyways, I I'm not here to cut down Xander again. I'm trying to le- cut him some slack too. But um so this this is a good Xander episode too because um I love that uh w- maybe it's Jonathan's perception, maybe it's within all of these on a spectrum of queerness. I don't know, but like I love the idea that the show didn't take Jonathan's manipulation of the universe and do something weird like, oh, Tara and Willow are going to be a, a little sexier with each other now, or right. like, or like Riley and Xander are going to get all jealous of of Jonathan. Not even Spike does. Spike still respects the guy, but uh, they're all equally as impressed by and attracted to him, and it's it's like a a confidence thing, and it's like it's it's not imbued with a sexuality at all unless it's like sort of xander and and anya right already already feeling themselves they're still in that zone where they're as the next episode will will relay they're still in that time in their life where they're having sex all the time so it's so it's on their minds already so jonathan just becomes a byproduct of that i don't (laughs) think it's him actually turning them on that much yeah 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 um and and i gotta shout out the do you have the Jonathan calendar? No. I mean, yes. yes. It was, it was, it was a, a gift. gift. It was a gift. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I, should, we, should we make something of the fact that Riley's uh, beloved balls poster on his <laughs> dorm room door <laughs> has been replaced with Jonathan's uh, uh, NBA poster? I, I, mean, I mean, if i hadn't thought about it but just like shooting from the hip i'm just like that's the metaphor for confidence man i know it's all about confidence i know jonathan got balls right right yes and uh i i am happy to say that uh in the next episode the balls poster is back it, it does not stay as a jonathan nba poster the balls poster makes a return but anyways um so Yes, some little details about this uh, episode before we move on. Um, I lo- I'm, obviously there's all of the Jonathan-themed background details, like Anya's eating a box of Johnny O's cereal, and there's all sorts of posters and flyers and stuff in the background. Um, 
I think my favorite would have to be so. So this came out in April two thousand, mm-hmm. uh, a, a year after two of my favorite movies, and uh-huh. it, it totally uses, it takes advantage of both the Matrix and being John Malkovich. And that that joke of being Jonathan Levinson on the marquee is right. the funniest thing in the yeah. world to me. Yeah, that was great. That was great. And the Matrix thing, thing, uh, I some people may have missed because. Um, it really is just a throwaway line that uh, that the who was it? Is it Willow? Somebody they're they're talking as as Buffy is walking away. So it's really just a line delivered in the background, and you can barely hear it. Where uh, someone well, they says, also discuss it at the meeting at the meeting where they're all like, "Where's Jonathan?" So we can start the meeting. Buffy's like, "This is the meeting." Uh, they someone says he started in the Matrix. I mean, he didn't even leave California. Oh, I miss. Or he I, didn't even leave Sunnydale. I'm talking about how easy it is to miss the other line, and I totally, I was oblivious to that. <laughs> I missed. Oh, yeah. I missed that one. <laughs> Where Riley is accepting all of reality, but he still hasn't remembered who Keanu Reeves is. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> um. So uh, let's see what else. Oh, um the the bronze scene where we get uh, the musical performance by Jonathan. A uh, little trivia detail that the internet provided for me is that the I went to see if that was actually um, uh, Danny Strong singing, uh, and it was not. Sadly, uh, the voice for that performance was provided by the actor Brad Kane, who actually played Tucker Wells from the episode The Prom. Oh, weird. Yeah, um, which I mean that by itself is just an odd thing that that actor comes back just to do the voice performance for uh for danny strong but then obviously uh i don't think we ever see the character of tucker again in fact i can't remember maybe he died i genuinely don't remember but i i'm almost positive tucker never shows up again but the andrew from the nerd trio that i just mentioned a minute ago is actually that character's brother so that's yeah, that's so nuts that that connection's there, and and it's a great voice match because I was yeah. That's always a pet peeve when a character singing, you know, Back to the Future, and like <laughs> that's clearly not Michael J. Fox. I was yeah. wondering if it was actually Danny Strong or not. So that's yeah. fun to know. Yeah, that's why I looked it up because I was like, man, he's really good, <laughs> but uh, it wasn't him. So uh, good on you, Brad Kane. Now I need to look up Brad Kane and see if he actually has a music career because I didn't follow that uh, thread any further, but. Uh, and then I think maybe the last thing, oh no, one more thing. Uh, uh, so this is the episode that gives us the reference to a world without shrimp or maybe a world with nothing but shrimp, um, which, um, I don't know how casual your fandom is, uh, Ken, I don't know if those lines mean anything to you. Um, I, I laughed when it happened and I was wondering if this was another thing. I've seen this whole series through twice uh-huh. and I'm, I'm following it along with, with this pod, but like I, yeah, well, I, I, I don't have anything and it's not, it's not coming to me at the moment. I, I knew that the whole reference to like an alternate reality, a world without shrimp, I knew that was a thing. I couldn't remember when that, like when it comes back. So I went and looked and in, uh, the Buffy episode 511 uh, Triangle, season five, episode 11 Triangle, um, they refer once again to a world without shrimp. So that's just a joke that comes back. And then the other one, the world uh, that's nothing but shrimp, uh, that gets referenced again way in the future in uh, Angel season five. The episode, wow. The episode underneath. The character of Illyria 
of all the wow. obscure characters uh, to make a callback to the fourth season of Buffy. Uh, she makes a reference to a world with nothing but shrimp. So that's hilarious. Anyways. I love that. And we're all we're all prawns in in this game. <laughs> yeah. All right. Exactly. Um, so, and then the last thing from this, I would just point out is the wonderful. I mean. I just spent way too long talking about my feelings on Buffy Summers, but the, the wonderful exchange between um, Willow and Anya where Willow's like, Buffy was right. Buffy was right. <laughs> and Anya's like, doesn't sound very likely. Does it? <laughs> I, just love, I just loved that exchange. I love Anya's um, lack of being able to hide. Mm-hmm. Even even caring to hide that she doesn't want to hang out with Buffy without Xander. Yeah. Uh, when Buffy goes over and and she's reading that uh, that the O Jonathan autobiography. Uh huh. Yeah. Um, also, uh, there's that comic book there, mm-hmm. and uh, I I looked this up to see, because that seemed to be like a real thing because um you know there's Buffy comics and Jane Espenson wrote a Dark Horse prequel to this episode. Right. Yeah, I which, couldn't believe that. That was super cool. Which I don't think that's the comic that we saw. I no, I don't think so. Um, but but the comic that we saw did was a Dark Horse comic. Yeah. So I mean that was uh, that was a reference to the fact that at the time Dark Horse Comics was publishing Buffy stuff. But yeah, I I also had forgotten that Jane Espenson, who wrote this episode by the way, um, had written a a Jonathan comic. So, anyways. Uh, Erica Luttrell, I don't know if anybody in the world knows this. Erica Luttrell, who showed up uh, as Karen, the the sort of Jonathan stalker who ends up getting attacked. Karen with a K. Karen with a K, right, exactly. Um, she's a voice actor. I, I look to see what else she's done, and she is a voice actor primarily. Um, and the two biggest things, excuse me, two biggest things I saw, uh, she provides the voice of Sapphire from the Steven Universe series. Nice. Which that seems pretty big to me. I have embarrassingly never seen Steven Universe, but I know it's got a huge following and I feel like Sapphire is a main character. And then the other thing is she did the voice of Emily Caldwin, who's the the lead character in the the video game Dishonored 2. Okay. So, anyways. There you go. Uh, right on. Anything else in this? Um, oh, oh g- so Jonathan, what do you think about this? Jonathan is technically the one that discovers Adam's weakness. Oh yeah, they really slipped that in there uh, under a a very elongated short joke. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> which That's means, so funny. which means I can't remember how that how it comes back in the regular series uh, later on in this season when the Scooby Gang actually needs to know this information. But um, unless they discover it independently again at the time, what I'm saying as of as of the episode Superstar, that means that Jonathan provides the essential information they need to defeat the bad guy, the big bad of the season. That's so funny. That's so good. Because <laughs> like at the time, you're just laughing at the ridiculousness of this setup of the scene. Like looks like they brought in the big guy. In this uh, yeah. So like. <laughs> Yeah, and he's he's like half the size of everybody else in that scene. Oh man, at the end of the episode, Riley says, "I just felt too tall." <laughs> man, poor Danny Strong. I love that. Um, I love that. Pa- with power and confidence is where one gets their quips mm-hmm. because uh, Buffy 
can't come up with anything to call Spike. But uh, yeah. Jonathan has the uh, line about what is it like oatmeal mix or something like that. Like you'll be when he just he just has a good quip about dusting him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, um, but oh, let's talk about that scene. I was curious. I couldn't remember. Does Spike find out that Faith in the last that Buffy in the last episode was actually Faith? Yeah. So Arlo, Arlo and I were talking about that, and I he couldn't remember, and I felt reasonably sure that at some point in season seven um, that that information I think when Faith comes back I think she tells him or whatever Um, and uh, somebody in the Facebook group immediately obviously as they were listening to the episode where I was like I think maybe that comes back they immediately jumped into Facebook group and, and sent a message that said yes yes he finds out he does learn okay so then that explains why in the scene here in the graveyard he's coming on so strong to Buffy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It seemed weird to me for a second, him just not like being a jerk back to her. But like the last time he saw her, he thought she was like just coming on to him hardcore. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So that's the thing he doesn't learn until uh, well after the whole Buffy, uh, the whole Spuffy thing happens. So um, there, there are, as I alluded to in the last episode of the podcast, there's, there has been and will continue to be debate about the sincerity of Spike's emotional investment in, in Buffy. Um, because some people will say it started from a false pretense, but at any rate. That's interesting. I mean, I don't think, I don't know. I, I don't have the authority to say I don't, <laughs> I, I'm not Spike, but yeah, I, I would assume he was just playing the charade all along as it would have gone had i don't know i i don't know i've never really thought about this if like the actions in the last episode got him to finally want her i i would assume he, if she would have acted like that two seasons ago he would have reciprocated in the same way but yeah that's that's an interesting question that i yeah i hadn't really thought about I, i'm sure many people have written essays about this and and hopefully my listeners and future guests this will be a topic that that we can delve into but i just i strongly suspect there are people who are not necessarily spuffy fans who don't who don't particularly think that he's that those two belong together uh that would say um that that was sort of the moment where um as a spuffy fan i will charitably say that was possibly the moment where spike his eyes were open to maybe feelings that he had been suppressing. I don't think that moment created from whole cloth, the idea that Spike could be attracted to Buffy, but I think maybe that was the moment where um, he started to question, do I actually hate her or do I actually want her? <laughs> yeah. Interesting. Cause, cause all, all anger or hatred or obsession comes from like, you can't hate without love. Yeah. It's all passion. You know, it's all passion. Right, it, it, there we go. Yes. Yeah. Um, okay. Wow. Let's, uh, <laughs> unless there was anything else, let's move on to where the wild things are, which is a, was a weird episode for me, mostly because I cannot, I, I just, I just simply cannot get it out of my head. Every single time I look at the episode title, where the wild things are, I always think that it is a, an Oz episode. And I'm, this is probably because the next episode in line is an Oz episode. 
Uh, New Moon Rising, which is we'll be talking about next week, is an Oz episode. But where the wild things are, for some reason in my head, I think of it as the first part of a two-parter featuring Oz. And clearly mm -hmm. it's not. It has nothing whatsoever to do with Oz. So I went into this episode thinking, all right, Oz is back. Wait, no, no, this is not Oz. Yeah, they should have saved that title for an Oz episode and called this episode um, the alternate title I like to refer to it as. Oh, okay, this will be great. Sex bad. Sex bad. Yeah. Okay. Now, are you saying that because it's written by the person who wrote Beer Bad? I'm saying it's a, in a way, feels like a spiritual sequel to Beer Bad, just about college indulgence and how it's going to ruin your life. Okay. This is awesome. Let's, so let's talk about what the heck this episode is because I'm not 100% sure. First of all, I, I, I love that you call it sex bad. That is what I will call it from now on. It is, in fact, written by Tracy Forbes, who is the person responsible for writing the episode Beer Bad. Did not know that. Nice. Um, so she, so Tracy Forbes, uh, I think this is the last thing she does. She's written three episodes for the series. She wrote Beer Bad, then she did Something Blue, and then she did this. So I think most people agree that Something Blue is a pretty good episode. Um, most people feel like Beer Bad is not a good episode. So yeah. this this is the tiebreaker. What what do you think about this episode? Does this put Tracy Forbes in the win column or is she back to being eh? Okay. So can you remind, remind me which one something blue is? Real something quick? something blue is the is the one where um Willow casts what was what was it? Uh I don't remember what spell she cast, but anyways, it, it makes up it ends up making uh, Buffy and Spike get married or like, they, uh, like fall in love and, and yes, decide to yes, get married. Yes. And... Okay. What I was going to say about this episode in relation to beer bads over seriousness and the sort of three episode arc in season six uh -huh. uh, that focuses on Willow. Right. I think those episodes are bad because they take themselves a little too seriously. Yes. And I think this episode gets how ridiculous it is. Okay. Like, I think from moment one with that fight where she says, you get fangs, I'll get horny. Uh -huh. Like, I, I think it knows it's stupid and silly and it has fun with its premise, even though its premise is questionable. So how do I feel about it? It's is it one of the greatest episodes of Buffy ever? No, not by a long shot, but it has a lot of great jokes and it is just so memorable that it really makes me laugh. Like, there's spin spin the bottle to glass shattering and going into everyone's eyes is ridiculous <laughs> the hand job wall is ridiculous like i i will never forget hand job wall uh, so you call it hand job wall i refer to it in my notes as orgasm wall but either way that works it works i mean yeah i think it, it's essentially being like everyone at this party got a hand job and right. it was terrible yeah so okay i'm gonna use that to segue into um i I'm going to use this opportunity to take another cheap shot at Marty Noxon. I, I apologize. This is, this is just my, uh, this is my uh, business model. Uh, I just want to ask how frustrated must she have been uh, that she was not the one <laughs> given this episode to write <laughs> because oh, that's hilarious because I, I, I'm sure unfairly uh, and maliciously associate all of the just ridiculous over the top unsubtle 
sexual metaphors that run through uh, a lot of Buffy the Vampire Slayer. I I associate with Marty Noxon, not favorably. Um, and so this episode, which is all about the unsubtle metaphor of sex, uh, is not written by Marty Noxon. Well, <laughs> yeah, I think that's hilarious. I mean, as... A- uh, we should all remember, like, a, scripts are assigned right. to to writers after being worked out in the writers' room by the team. Right. And I, I, having with you having said that, I would venture to guess that Marty Noxon had a lot of input. And in on fact, where this went. In fact, I think Marty Noxon is the credited writer for the next episode for uh, for uh, New Moon Rising, the Oz episode that I thought this was. So, <laughs> anyways. Um, yeah so this episode is all about i mean i can't quite decide if i think the internal logic i'll use logic in air quotes if the internal logic of this like poltergasm monster of the week episode which is just a great title poltergasm um i can't decide if it's particularly logic-y but i am endlessly amused by the notion that Buffy and Riley are essentially the double A batteries in the supernatural haunted vibrator. Right. <laughs> that, that is the episode. And that, that essentially them having sex is the equivalent of get out to the sunken place, like visually. Yeah. Oh, I'm just wow. Like, what is, what is it doing? Um, it, it's like, okay. I think metaphorically it's trying to be like, just sort of comment on that moment where, your friends get a regular partner for the first time and then they start ignoring you. Like yeah. we've all sort of experienced that in life. Like, and that's fine commenting on that. But as far as the logic of this episode, dude, the mechanics of this spell of this haunting, <laughs> it makes no sense. So they, and we'll, we'll get to the stuff earlier in the episode, but when they finally explain it, when Giles is trying to explain this, like in having that old woman there very unapologetically explaining what she did, uh-huh. like she says, they, they make clear that no one died. And he says it was just like the bad energy from here that's haunting this place. Like it doesn't really make any sense to me. It So, and it only is activated when this certain really hot couple starts banging. So that was my question. <laughs> that was where I got really hung up on this. Um, the the whole bit with with Giles saying it's not ghosts and and Anya's like, but one ran right through me. And he's like, no, it's not ghosts. It's poltergeist. So that whole thing I was both frustrated by because that is possibly maybe uh, scholars correct me, uh, but to the best of my knowledge, that's the first time anyone has made a distinction between ghosts and poltergeists. I feel like poltergeist is typically used as a synonym for ghosts. Mm -hmm. Uh, So part of me was like, well, that's really weird and annoying. And then another part was like, I actually really kind of dig the, the internal mythology that Giles is setting up here. Um, I don't know how much sense it makes, but I'm kind of having fun with it. Uh, And, and Anthony Stewart head is delivering it really like, you know, authoritatively so good on you but but yeah the the mechanics of it and in particular the fact that presumably these negative emotions these spiritual energies have been in this house the whole time and it's not until buffy and riley start banging (laughs) that anything gets activated um like yeah like they're the only people that selfishly or or 
banged or banged like misguided i mean yeah it's, like, a, it's a college dorm house for crying out loud there have been where the been, initiative lives yeah there's there's <laughs> been plenty of sex happening in that building between you know since 1961 of, or whatever yeah exactly now i suppose you could try and make an argument that yeah but none of them were the slayer and slayer sex is special but that but riley's not angel like, right yeah riley's just some guy he's yeah. just a he's a good dude for her college boyfriend like i've been to say in last episode like you know a lot of people like in with this show when they talk about people like buffy is with like like her boyfriends like it's always got to be a favorites game and it's right. like if i were to list my favorites of her boyfriends yeah, I suppose Riley would be lower on the list under Angel and Spike. Mm-hmm. But they're not with her right now. He seems all right. Yeah. He's just not as entertaining or cool or mysterious or or, or like brooding and 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 but there's that moment in the last episode that like he stands up for her when the rest of the team even giles can't even believe in buffy yeah and he he's like you know what i i don't it seems crazy but i think i should trust this girl and it's it's him having a belief in her that allows her to sort of like like you know feel empowered like her belief was an insanity and and so i think it's a good relationship for the time that it lasts and so that's another reason that this whole uh uh poltergasm <laughs> coming to life doesn't really make sense like they sort of deserve each other right now they're outcasts in a world that should just feel normal to them him as a teacher's aide her as a student like this shouldn't be a big deal but like it's just nuts this all should be fine right yeah um i mean uh, this feels like the kind of uh monster of the week episode that in an earlier season might not have I at least might not have been like, well, this makes no sense. Um, I don't know. I I think maybe we cut earlier episodes like this uh, more slack than I'm willing to do at this point. Because, yeah, I am pretty much hung up on why did this happen now? It's a wonderful... Maybe it's because the metaphor is a little bit more clumsy and they've kind of addressed this metaphor before. I feel like the... <clears throat> excuse me. In some regards, this entire season has been about how you know once you leave high school your friends start developing their own lives and they don't spend 24 hours a day with you um and so the idea that the the underlying metaphor of this episode is about how yeah she's got a boyfriend now and so she's going to hang out with her boyfriend more and have sex than she's going to want to hang out with you guys that that's been done on the show before so Right. As a metaphor, this episode seems a little unnecessary. And because of that, I feel like it it needs to be explained better than it is. And so if if this had been a season one or a season two episode, I might be like, oh, that was fun. That was a fun Monster of the Week episode. But Mm -hmm. uh, as it is, I'm like, yeah, it doesn't really make sense to me. And it does sort of bring up the question of like, why does this show seem to do the thing where every time Buffy engages in her own sexuality she gets punished for it mm-hmm. now other times where that happens it can be that can all be chalked up to character stuff the stuff that's happening with the characters surrounding her in that moment um but in this yeah we can't really make that make sense at all so so that's why i'm sort of like like 
I I will never if I'm watching the show through there might be some episodes I skip if I were just doing it independently I wouldn't skip this episode just because I have fun watching it right even if it doesn't really make a lot of sense to me yeah I mean we get the wonderfully awkward uh, ice cream truck scene that's that's excellent all the Xander and Anya stuff in this episode that little arc is really good her flirting with Spike and mm-hmm. and, and her her and him bonding over powers that they don't have anymore and yeah. her bringing Spike to the party. And uh, uh, him not understanding why she brought him there and mm-hmm. like her just doing it to make Xander jealous. Dude, on uh, Emma Caulfield's delivery of like, I'm I'm having fun already. Woohoo. <laughs> yeah, that was uh, a like, great. I, I, I can't even do it justice at all. Like she's just she kills it in this episode. Yeah. Yeah. I said on an earlier uh, episode of the podcast, uh, right after I had gotten back from uh, th- this year's Slayage conference, that um, at that conference, someone had presented a wonderful paper on uh Anya's arc across the series and uh I've always liked but not like Anya has never been my favorite character she's she's fine I don't have anything against her but it wasn't until I saw that presentation that I was like you know what Anya was actually really kind of a tremendous character and I have a much better appreciation for that character now having uh heard that presentation and I'm watching her with a more critical eye now and and uh Emma Caulfield is is wonderful so yeah she's she's amazing she humanizes the basic human instincts because she's feeling them for the first time mm-hmm. it's and and so so like it might if, if you're in a relationship with somebody and you go at night without having sex for the first time you can understand like like that that it shouldn't be a big fight at that time but she is able to blow up in a way that like a baby blows up a, a, over an issue a toddler starts screaming about something um, but but in a way that we sort of are able to understand, and that's such a fine line to walk with acting because we see a mature person that's lived enough years like before us, like a human grown woman, and like it's like, man, you should have been able to deal with your emotions by now. But story wise, it makes sense. So the way she always is, delivers everything, the most extreme and sort of cuts to the chase, is just in, incredible because she, as a vengeance demon. Got, saw that that was the beginning of the end of all of these relationships. Yeah. It was when these people stopped banging. So she has a right to be upset uh, given that context. Yeah. It, it's a little crazy. I didn't, uh, I didn't do the math. I didn't go back and check how many episodes this would cover. But um, <clears throat> at this point in the series, we assume that uh, Xander and Anya have been having sex for quite a while. Like at, mm-hmm. at, at least this full season. I think maybe it was really, really early in the season. I think that it kind of became official. Um, and so Anya's got the line or Xander says something about this. Isn't the first time we haven't had sex. And Anya says, yeah, twice. <laughs> so <laughs> in, in whatever span of time this season so far has covered, there have only been two nights that Anya and Xander have not had sex. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> and Oh, to be young again. <laughs> She, she's she's afraid of bunnies. Right. Like she's one of them. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Um, so what else? What else did we get uh, in this episode? Is this the? Yeah. This is. I think this is the first time in the series that we see Anthony Stewart head sing. Oh, that's that's an all timer. That's yeah. why I'll revisit this episode. The the his reaction when he notices them there and he doesn't miss a beat like yeah. you see the fear in his eyes for one second and then he knows i gotta go right back to performing this with everything i have yeah I, 
it's it's amazing. He's hilarious, but also just a beautiful voice. I I mean, yeah, he's great. So he uh like he had had a music career before this. Uh he obviously was Frankenfurter in the stage production of uh Little Shop of Horrors. He did another musical that's not immediately coming to mind. Um I can't remember. Anyways, but so obviously maybe Buffy fans didn't know, but but some people at least knew that Anthony Stewart had had a, had musical talent. I mean, his brother, by the way, this is a detail that I've known for a long time, but I don't know how many other people do. Uh, Murray Head, the the one hit wonder responsible for um, One Night in Bangkok, that song One Night in Bangkok. That's uh-huh. him, that's his brother. That's Anthony Stewart. Whoa, Head's that's brother. hilarious. Anyways, that's so random. Yeah, but um, so it's interesting that it's taken almost four full seasons of the show for them to give uh, Anthony an opportunity to actually sing on camera. And I mean, he sings again. Well, like there's, we see more, we hear more of Anthony Stewart head after this. Um, Oh yeah. But, but that, that is an intro. I remember seeing that for the first time and just feeling just like the Scoobies. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I love the fact that all the girls, even Anya were like, I mean, it's kind of hot. Kind yeah, of and Xander for some reason, just because Xander Xander has to be completely horrified at the notion, which, I mean, it was funny. It was a little over the top. I was like, really? Is it that? Is it that disturbing, Xander? Or are you just trying to be funny? But uh, I, I love the fact that the girls were all like, Willow's like, ah, oh, now I remember why I used to have a crush on him. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, going from the father figure to the daddy figure, mm-hmm. all in one scene. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Um, what, uh, so talking a little bit about the larger metaphor and how maybe clumsy and unnecessary it was, what about the sort of individual metaphors? Mostly what is the significance of the wall of thorns or, or do you think there is a significance to the wall of thorns that kept, as that scene was playing out, as they were trying to get into Riley's room to stop, to, to interrupt the sex? And all of the vines grew up and everything. From that point on, I started trying to imagine, like, is this a, is this a Sleeping Beauty thing? Is there some sort of fairy tale homage happening here? Like, what is the, what is the literary or metaphorical significance of it being a wall of thorns that is preventing them from getting to the princess or whatever? Um, can you think of anything, or was it just a? a convenient sort of random supernatural thing. Yeah. I think the reason it's there is to justify the title of the episode where the wild things are just sort of like feel wild and jungly. And I don't know there. It's like what they're engaging in is animalistic. So that's supposed to be like, I don't know. I got nothing for you. I I like the visual component of Anya and Xander hacking away with a machete. Uh huh. I like that. I like seeing that stuff. So, um, I mean, yeah, it, it did, it did make for interesting visuals, but so, I, yeah, I guess I want to examine, I don't know why it didn't occur to me until you just said that to even question, what does the title even mean? So the obvious reference here and possibly the only reference, I, I can't think of another one, uh, to the title where the wild things are is 
um, the children's the children's book. book. Yeah, I um, don't know. I don't think unless that book got its title from something that I'm not thinking of right now. The book itself by uh, Maurice Sendak is the only thing I can come up with, and I don't know if there's any thematic similarities between that book and this story. And I don't remember. I I don't think there were any like walls of vines or anything in the book where the wild things are. So, uh, yeah, I'm a little bit confused again, my scholarly listeners and future guests, please elucidate, uh, on what the significance of the title might be. But in the moment I was trying to figure out why a wall of thorns, what does it mean? And, and I guess where we're going with this is you and I don't necessarily know. Yeah. It's, uh, I never really even thought about it. I guess I just sort of accepted it as like, this house is crazy. I mean, orgasms on the second floor, vines, or orgasms on the first floor, vines on the second. <laughs> I, I, I don't know. Uh, a fireplace that randomly spits out every so often just because people have sex. It's just all random. It's all very random. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. Again, and nobody died. <laughs> I don't understand where this poltergeist came from. yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, I suppose I suppose none of those kids should have had to have died in order for us to be horrified by their experiences. Like the fact that they were abused by this uh <clears throat> this woman mm-hmm. uh just because she didn't kill any of them doesn't necessarily make what she did any less horrific. But I get where you're going with that. Like typically you think of a haunted house being the result of uh, someone dying there or whatever. And that doesn't appear to have been the case. Um, but uh, to again, highlight Anthony Stewart head's performance. I mean, not only does he have a great singing voice, but it was a, a particularly, it was brief, but it was a particularly powerful moment in an episode that's otherwise just kind of uh, amusing. Um, when he confronted her, when he like got really angry at her, her and said, you know, you abused these children and you traumatized them. And many of them have probably grown up now to be damaged adults who possibly have hurt other people. Um, just that moment was, you know, honest and powerful. And I kind of wish to- the rest, totally. I kind of wish the rest of the episode had had the sort of gravitas of that. It didn't occur to me until I was putting my notes together for this uh, podcast that um, there really wasn't any, uh, sort of consequence. Now, you could say that that's a, a moment of reality slipped into this fantastical show. Not everybody suffers consequences for their horrible actions, but it just seems a little, uh, I don't know, dramatically unfair that all that woman had to suffer was that Giles got in her face and yelled at her and then walked away. And in the end, as far as we know, she just continues living her life. Right. But, yeah, that's super weird. But but I agree about like that that being a great Giles moment. Was it was it uncomfortable for you? It it was uncomfortable in, in the moment and now I'm not so sure, but it was a little bit uncomfortable in the moment for me that Willow's contribution to that sort of séance that they were having uh as they were trying to talk these these angry spirits into moving on that Willow's contribution was to not, not imply, but to actually say, get over it. Yeah. Yeah. That's strange. I, 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 yeah, I, that's super weird. 
both uh, the 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 Willow, the big Willow moment with her and Tara in this was really a bummer too. Where uh, where Tara, it seems like Tara's like implying something sexual because everything else is sexual here, and then the second Willow engages with it, um, she she freaks out, which is also interesting. We didn't mention it in Superstar that immediately follows uh, in Superstar the moment where. I, I guess Buffy doesn't catch on to anything. She must. She must. But like the moment where they're walking Tara home before the monster attacks her, and uh, Willow's just like, or one of them's just like, okay, well, I'll see you tomorrow. And then just totally wanting to kiss, but can't because Buffy's there. Yeah. Like, I, I, I don't know. That was very, um, that was a bummer. That, that is something I wanted to say about Superstar, and I forgot, is that um, I. I had, you know, a couple of little hangups with it that I mostly got over. Uh, one of the things that I was, one of the minor hangups I had is that that episode sort of gives the show a pass on how it introduces Tara officially to the rest of the group. Um, because previously, um, the first time Tara met anybody other than Willow, like any other member of the Scooby gang, was in um, Who Are You? when faith inside Buffy's body met her. And, and so, and that was, that was one of Tara's things is that she felt like she was being held back. Like Willow wasn't introducing her to her friends. And so now we cut to this episode and obviously she's been introduced to the group and we don't really get to see that happen. Now she's just all of a sudden hanging out with the Scooby gang and everybody kind of knows her. They, They apparently still don't know that there's a relationship there, but she's now technically, at least on the edges, if not in the group. And uh, I was, a, I was a little bit bothered by the fact that the show just kind of did that and didn't let us see that happen. But... Yeah. That's interesting that she wouldn't. Yeah. You'd think they'd pick a story beat to naturally bring her in as necessary to like, I don't know, help them save Willow or something. Right. Yeah. <clears throat> um, but then to address what you were talking about in, in this episode, I think you're, I think what you meant was the scene when, uh, on the stairs on the stairs yeah when willow like puts her hand on her leg and and um like i i think we followed what the episode was doing tara was briefly under the influence of whatever these spirits are in the house right yeah but the episode doesn't actually really ever kind of go back and and explain that i mean i mean i guess we know it but i don't (laughs) like the episode never actually explains that oh that was tara momentarily possessed by the spirit of a child who had been sexually abused or, or something. Um, and I don't know, we never on camera get to see Willow kind of put that together. So in, to some extent that's almost left as really just an uncomfortable moment between those two characters. Yeah. She, yeah. After that, I guess is when Willow goes to look for her, she finds that boy in the bathtub and then Tara's just like, I don't like it here. We should go. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Well, I mean, obviously this gets, I don't know if this exact thing gets addressed in the future, but obviously the relationship between Willow and Tara gets addressed. Yeah. Yeah. They, uh, they work it out. Yeah. They get past tonight. Yeah. Um, you were talking about Spike, uh, earlier when, uh, Anya brings him to the party to make Xander jealous and, uh, possibly my favorite line from the episode goes to surprise surprise goes to spike when he realizes that uh xander is getting jealous and he's like 
Oh, who's the puffed up manly man? All splotchy and possessive. Oh God. Just, I love any, anytime Spike gets to be snarky and, and uh, condescending like that is great. I, I love when he talks himself out of saving Buffy. Right. Yeah. That's the, that's hilarious to me. He's, he's like, oh, all that adds up. Yeah. yeah. Um, it's hard for me to re- remember at this point that, in just let me look at my yeah in just two episodes so so the next episode of the podcast i'm going to be addressing uh spike's sort of return to just outright villainy because because right now he's he's really the he's the neutered puppy who's the comic relief and he's made he's made this is the second time he's made reference to the fact that uh for some reason you guys like to pretend that i'm a friend but i hate all of you why do you think just because i can't <laughs> actively attack you doesn't mean i like you um but he's he's just so much fun on camera and he's he's so like great that i have to remember in just a couple of episodes uh we get the yoko factor where he he goes back to actively taking steps to destroy these people yes which is a great episode but yeah, I, I'm looking forward to that rewatch. So, so I have I have this show on right now. This episode just silent in the background. Oh, okay. And uh, the first time we see the vines are when they go up to to open the door where Riley and Buffy are, mm-hmm. and and apparently that's all it takes to end the spell. Like, was they to wake them to, have, to get the door open? Yeah, yeah, just to get them to stop banging for one second. It didn't. They didn't need to. So, so the vines just appear in front of the door. I guess that's the house just trying to hold on to its power, since that's the thing that takes it away. Not yeah, that but, that's meaningful or makes sense, but yeah, I'm but, just saying. But why vines? Like why? I don't know. It's <laughs> stupid. It was. Yeah. I'll, I, the more we talk about it, the more I think this. It's it's just stupid. Okay. All <laughs> but... right. Well, let's, let's let's stop talking about it. Although I do I do want to mention. I thought it was interesting that uh, when when Anya has been like knocked knocked off the stairs and she like picks herself up and storms back up the stairs. She gets like her hand gruesomely impaled by uh, one of the vines. You remember that? She's like, puts her hand on the rail and it just like, and we only saw it on camera. Like we only saw the visual effect for a brief second, but it was pretty gruesome. Like that was, it wasn't, she didn't, it wasn't just like a prick of a thorn. She got like freaking impaled. Um, And then immediately forgets about it. Like, I mean, she's not even, she doesn't even like cradle her hand from that point on. She like, I think we see blood on the back of her hand, maybe in a scene later on, but she, she obviously is not bothered by the fact that she has what should technically be a gaping hole all the way through one of her hands. She's not even in the main credits yet. And she's been with the Scoobies long enough to just accept that that's a part of the day. It just happens, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Um, is there anything else that we need to talk about here? This, I think this is the first time we ever see condoms on Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Oh, yeah. At least they're showing safe sex. Right. Which, I mean, like, I mean, again, that's part of the weird mixed messaging of all of this. It's yeah. like, it all seems negative, but use condoms. Is using condoms negative? What does this all add up to? <laughs> uh, wow. Um, so, I... There's just one more piece of trivia that I found out about this episode, and I think it's the last thing I've got to say about it. And that's, um, I don't know how much of this played into the actual plotting 
of this episode, but one of the reasons why Sarah Michelle Gellar had so little screen time in this particular episode is she was actually, they were trying to give her time to film her guest appearance on Angel episode 119, Sanctuary. Nice. Which is, it's not, I didn't include it in my crossover discussion because it's, I mean, it's not really technically crossover Buffy pops up in an episode of angel and she was filming that episode when they were, I guess at the same time they were filming this. And so they, that's at least part of the reason why they came up with an excuse why Buffy wasn't on camera very much. That's, that's fun to know logistic stuff like that though. Like I never would have thought about it. Like I was like, well, they're really not doing a lot with Buffy this episode, even though she's the crux of, she is the monster of the week. Apparently. Yes. Her, her libido is the yes of the week yeah uh, okay well there you go i it's i will forever refer to this as sex bad <laughs> and um unless unless it's the couplet if you're referring to this episode of this podcast you're about allowed to call it where the wild things superstar <laughs> okay all right that works um and and i'm i'm fond of my analogy of Buffy and Riley being the double A batteries and the giant haunted vibrator. So, yeah, that's uh, great. I that, love it. That will stay with me for a while, but anyways, um, both episodes that, uh, I, th- I think you referred to, was it where the wild things are that you said was a memorable episode? You referred to one of them as a memorable episode. And I was about to say, yeah, except that I can't, re- I can never remember it. <laughs> it must've been this one. Cause this is the one that yeah. I always think is an Oz episode. So um, I will, hopefully this will be memorable going forward. The, the sex bad and the, the double a batteries and a haunted vibrator. Uh, hopefully that will help this stand out in my memory going forward. Right. I, I watched both of these episodes twice uh, in preparation for this and just had fun watching them, you know, alone. Mm-hmm. And uh, but as we talk about them, uh, it's it's very clear that Superstar is the standout here. Right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, not that we have to compare or list or rank anything, uh, but, yeah. but it's just yeah. a, after talking about them for an hour and a half, it, it's it's just become very noticeable how how they stand apart. Yeah. Uh, all right. Well, Ken, thank you for coming back. Um, it hasn't been that long. I mean, it's been that long since we recorded, but it hasn't been that many episodes. You were just on for Hush, and uh, which, by the way, was a fantastic episode of the podcast because you're always great on mic. But thank you for coming back. Of course, I I appreciate it. I I love I love doing this. I'll do any of these anytime you want me. I I will not allow you to give up on podcasting entirely. That's fine. <laughs> no matter how even, hard you try. Even even my band was like, we should do a Patreon podcast. I was like, nope. Have fun, guys. <laughs> oh, wow. Well, that makes it even more special that you continue to come on shows for me. So thank you. Um, of course. I'm going to I'm gonna say this out loud. I know it won't happen, but I, I think it's a fantastic idea. If anyone's listened to uh, Gobbledy Geek with Paul and Arlo, they've had many different guests on all of their Avengers episodes, all of their Marvel episodes. And I really think I'm starting this petition now. So let them know on the Facebook. Like, I think he should have every guest that they've ever had (laughs) for a Marvel movie on the Avengers Endgame episode to, oh. just to mirror the experience. We'll each get two minutes of talk time. Holy, It'll be perfect. Holy crap. Okay, so <laughs> so I would have to... I, I will have to go back through my records and figure out who who that would be. Like, how many people that would be. Um, 
I think maybe it wouldn't be quite as unmanageable because there's probably a lot of repeat guests. You are probably four or five of those guests, Ken. So, um, but I know how much trouble I have just corralling like more than two guests at a time. So <laughs> I just think of the nightmare that that would be. I'll tell you what, if, if half of those guests promise to turn to dust during the recording, I'll, I'll consider it. <laughs> yeah, when Skype's just about to give up right before you hit record, just do a simple snap, a digital snap, and yeah. then free up the bandwidth for the rest of us. Right, yeah. So, uh, or, or the rest of you. I might die in the snap. Who knows? Who knows? Oh, maybe I will finally get my sweet release. Maybe I will be one. <laughs> uh, anyways, Ken, what, uh, tell the listeners what's going on in your life. What do you want to pimp, man? Okay, um, my main thing these days is I'm in a band called the Alex Jonestown Massacre, um, and we, uh, we're doing, three of us are comedians, we met doing comedy here in Richmond, um, and we are doing a, a comedy show at the end of May here in Richmond called The Winsmith Games. I'm sorry if you can hear that siren outside my window. I gotta get this out before they come in. You're good. <laughs> and, yeah. uh, okay. Um, we're we're doing we're doing a show at the end of May called the Winsmith Games here in Richmond at Castleburg Brewery. It's May twenty fifth, and uh, I was like, you should have the Win- Winston Hodges who hosts the show. I was like, you 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 should have the three of us on, three comedians as half the panel of your guests, and and he was like, yeah, but you guys aren't really a comedy band, and I'm like, I'm here to announce right now to the public, like Alex Jonestown Massacre is our name. <laughs> and we are going to be playing this year's gathering of the juggalos screw you tell me we're not a comedy band we're a comedy band alex jonestown massacre at gala gathering of the juggalos this is 2019 people engage with reality get in on board now so um i i actually i had genuinely not considered whether you were or were not a comedy band like that, that <laughs> I hadn't thought of it in those terms. Um, but uh, how, you have four band members, right? There's... Yes. Okay. So, so first of all, I want to know how that one poor bastard who is not a comedian, like how he feels. <laughs> What's it like to be the only non-comedian in a group full of comedians? Um, well, I consistently tell him he's the funniest member of the band. And, oh, okay. and he should do comedy. And like, he's like, that's why I don't need to do comedy. <laughs> all right. Um, but, uh, anyways, yeah, just the fact that your, your band name is the Alex Jonestown massacre. I mean, that's a joke right there that you right, Boom. right, our, right off our, the top debu- here. And our debut album is called fear of a flat planet. Yeah. That's, that's, uh, that's comedy right there, people. Um, exactly. and I, I will say that, uh, before we started recording, you, you foreshadowed you warned me that you were going to bring up this uh, uh gathering of the juggalos thing and i had kind of a reaction to that to you telling me that so um i'll give you an opportunity to set people straight the way you set me straight i have uh for for whatever reason uh i have personal biases that i have never particularly examined about the juggalos and you have you've informed me that apparently i am completely wrong in my uh, assumption of what the heck the juggalos are about so yeah they're they're an open-minded body positive uh extremely you know socialist anarchist what have you anti-fascist movement they just happen to wear wear clown makeup and 
it's really a, just in the same way punk rockers would wear, you know, like chains and studs and stuff just to be like, well, if you're not going to like me just because of this, then F you too. Um, so, so I, I didn't, I wasn't really aware of that. Um, but you know, watch you get, there's a documentary on YouTube about gathering of the jugglers and it's just a bunch of peace, peace loving clowns, uh, who love, who love drinking beer and doing drugs and loving everybody. So, uh, I, peace, I don't know. Peace loving, there, peace loving clowns is my juggalo cover band, by the way. <laughs> and we do, we do not have like comedy lyrics. We might have comedy titles of things, including mm-hmm. songs, but, but we are largely just like anti-fascist rock and roll. So it's, it's right in line with, uh, what, where we're at, you know, aesthetic wise, pretty silly, but, and, and some, some of insane clown posse's music is, is pretty silly for those who don't know juggalos are insane clown posse fans. And I I realize, I realize I just said my juggalo cover band. I should have said my insane clown posse cover band. I'm, I'm the worst. No, which, whichever you can, I'm sure there are plenty of juggalo bands out there now that you could cover. Uh, but maybe we should we should just start covering covering juggalo bands which are bands that are formed because they were fans of icp i assume that's a real thing at this point but um uh i i don't know i'm not particularly an insane clown posse fan but i am excited to play this festival and it's it's the big definitely the biggest thing we've done so far no we haven't even done it yet but yeah, it's it's a pretty big announcement, in my opinion. Well, yeah. So I, I will say congratulations. That's awesome, because obviously that is a that's a huge venue. And, and you know, that sort of exposure uh, for your band can only be great. But um, right. In, Indiana. End of July. Last weekend of July. If you if you want to come. There you go. And uh, I again, I will say I I had uh I had a bias against uh, ICP and the Juggalos that formed years ago, and I'm not even really entirely sure why, but just in the back of my mind, I assumed they were violent. I, I, I don't know. I, I had an association with the term Juggalos, and you've kind of made me question that. So I will, at your recommendation, I will go check out that 24-minute uh, uh, documentary on YouTube just to see what they're all about. But uh, regardless, congratulations. That's awesome. I hope... Uh, I hope you find a an even larger audience because of this exposure. Thank you, Paul. I expect to see you and Pam there in face paint. <laughs> oh yeah, that's because that's very likely to happen. <laughs> we'll be there in spirit. Our right. our crazy um, makeup wearing spirits will be there. Our our over sexualized poltergeists will be there. That's actually where the wild things are at the yeah. gathering of the juggalos. Yeah, that exactly. That's what the title means. There's a subtle juggalos reference years before they were even a thing, hidden somewhere in the episode where the wild things are. <laughs> but but if you out there can't make it to gathering of the juggalos, all of our music is on YouTube, Spotify, Apple Music, iTunes, Bandcamp. We have an EP, Fear of a Flat, or we, an EP. What we do is stupid. Uh, and then an, our first album was called Fear of a Flat Planet. And two weeks ago, we just recorded a two-track single called No Cemeteries. And it'll be out uh, probably at the beginning of May. No Cemeteries on a podcast called Conversations with Dead People, where I am I like to pretend that I'm recording from a cemetery? What is what is happening <laughs> here? What's going on? <laughs> um, yeah, well, you, I mean, you're going to be back on this show eventually, and I we will probably get you on gobbledygeek again at some point. So be prepared to share this music with the world next time you're on one of my shows. All right. We'll do. 
in the meantime, I, I did provide uh, links the last time you were on this show, uh, which was to discuss Hush. I provided links to uh, all of your band information. I'll do that again with this episode. So listeners, be sure and check the the show notes for links to that. And um... Oh, I think last time I was on your show, I had deactivated everything. I am currently on Instagram just to promote band stuff. So it's... Okay, it's, well... <laughs> it's. <laughs> I'll tell you what, you can... Uh, you can tell, say the links now for the listeners and then send me the links just to make sure I have all the updated information. Right. It's uh, Ken.Edwards on Instagram. Just Ken okay. with two N's and a period before the last name. Okay. Um, and I don't really do a lot with it, but there will be info there when it's relevant. All right. Awesome. Uh, well, thank you everybody at home for listening, for playing along. You can find links to this and all of the past episodes at the website conswithdead.com. Uh, subscribe to the show on iTunes. Uh, and while you're there, please rate us or write us a review. Help spread the word. Um, mostly so that uh, people's pe- people's <laughs> mostly so that mm-hmm. people will learn about uh, my wonderful guests like Ken and his his uh, musical ventures, and uh, they'll go to the gathering of the Juggalos and like. Thank- Thank you, Paul, by the way. I didn't say thank you. And, and, and I got to book in this whole thing with how much I love doing this. Okay. Well, everybody loves you, Ken. You are one of my most uh, popular guests. I don't know if that's true, but uh, to me, you're one of the most popular <laughs> guests. Um, anyways. Um, I bet you say that to all the corpses. I, yeah. Yes. You're my favorite corpse, Ken. Um if you have got questions for me or any of my guests like Ken alive or dead, or if you'd just like to share your thoughts on anything that we've talked about, please join the conversation. You can drop us an email at conswithdead at gmail.com or follow us on Twitter at conswithdead or on the Facebook group conversations with conversations with dead people um, next week. And for the first time in a long time, I actually genuinely mean next week. I'm hoping uh, that we'll see the long-awaited return of fan scholar slash scholar fan Nikki Stafford, uh, who will be coming back to discuss episodes 419, New Moon Rising, which is the Oz episode, and 420, The Yoko Factor, which is the Spike Remembers He's a Bad Guy episode. <laughs> so, uh, until then, Gur Arg, everybody. Gur Arg. Who's that man with them 20 inches under that wide body bands? And who's that man sitting in VIP just a thug in? Ooh.